Hi, I'm Steve Leard, and welcome to Cover Meeting, the book cover design podcast where we speak with designers about their work, the industry, and everything else in between. In this episode, we're joined by Mike Dempsey, a practicing graphic designer since 1964. From the late 60s, he worked as an art director for two leading British publishing houses, William Heinemann and William Collins. In 1979, he founded the design consultancy Carroll and Dempsey, which later became CDT Design Limited. His work has earned him many awards, and in 2012, he was presented with a special black pencil for the most awarded designer in the DNAD's 50-year history. He's acted as design advisor to the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, was appointed consultant art director by the Royal Mail to create the two-year Millennium Stamp Programme, and was art director of the Royal Society of Arts Journal from 1997 to 2002. He's written features for iMagazine, Design Week, Creative Review, The Times, and many more. He was made a Royal Designer for Industry in 1994 and was elected a member of Alliance Graphic International in 1998. He was the president of the DNAD in 1997 and 98, was master of the faculty of Royal Designers for Industry from 2005 to 2007, and was the external design advisor to the Design Council. Mike also hosts RDI Insights, a recorded series he devised in 2006, featuring interviews with world-class raw designers for industry across all disciplines. He left CDT at the end of 2007 to form Studio Dempsey, and now lives and works in both London and Dorset. Mike has a clear passion for design history, but he's sometimes been a critic of cover design's overuse of design trends, tropes, and publishing's tendency to overload covers with marketing copy, giant type, and visual clutter. So I hope this episode is a little bit different and provokes some thought and maybe even a little pushback. I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks so much for joining me, Mike. Um, when planning this podcast, I thought it would be beneficial to invite people on who might look at cover design from a slightly different perspective uh, and not always just those working in trade publishing day in, day out. Um, and I thought you you fit the bill perfectly. Um, having previously worked in publishing before going on to establish a consistently successful career in design more broadly, um, you've always retained a passion for and interest in in cover design. Um, you, you worked as an art director for two leading British publishing houses, uh, William Heinemann and William Collins from the late 60s. Um, would you mind explaining how covers were typically briefed to designers and how covers were approved during that time? Because the, the machine of publishing has has changed quite a lot during that time. And, and I don't really have much of an idea of if the process was similar to how it is now or if it was radically different. Well, first of all, before I became an art director of a publishing house, um, I was doing freelance work for publishers and I worked for a, an artist agent. That's where I sort of started, really. I mean, I had, you know, I basically... Uh, dreamed of getting into the creative world, which for me was um, a kind of like a fantasy. 
um, because I came from a very working class background where you're, you're destined to go and work in the local factory. So I went to evening classes and, um, you know, uh, discovered that there was a thing called graphic design. But anyway, I'll run forward because that's a long story. Um, I first got into the world of design, if you like, by working in small studio, jobbing studios. They were the sort of studios that were supporting advertising agencies, doing the artwork and that sort of thing and taking photographs. So I worked in a little studio really just across the road from St. Bride's, funnily enough, which I know is very kind of like mecca for all people that probably listen to this podcast in this country. Um, so I, I was right there. And basically, I would um, dream of being a designer, being a, a sort of lowly, not even assistant. I'd, I'd, I'd go around the studio um, giving people coffee, making coffee and uh, um uh, then they were doing, you know, they would. Everything was done physically, so they had um, they had jars of water ready, to, you know, f- for cleaning their brushes, and I'd make sure all the water was clean, so forth, and run messages and all of that. But in the lunch hour, I would I would watch people, and I would ask them, you know, I would ask them specific details about, you know, what are you doing, you know, that, and then I, you know, because I could always draw. That was that was the only thing with me. I could draw. So I picked things up relatively quickly, but at the same time, I um, found a bookshop at the end of Fleet Street, which is very small, but really eclectic. And I found, and I'm going to show you this, even though the the viewers, the listeners won't, but I'm going to describe. This book here is the very first DNAD annual, okay? And I bought this with my very lowly pay because... I I thought, wow, I looked through it and it's all it's just in black and white. I mean, would you believe would you believe <laughs> it? It's black and white, it's very thin. Look at that compared with how it is today. Yeah. yeah. So I looked through and there were book covers in there that I was really attracted to. In black even in black and white. I thought that this wow, this looks interesting. So I'd started to go to the book um, shops regularly and I would look at covers. And then I would look at this book and I would go home in the evenings after work and I would, I would, and I know actually weirdly designers now do this on podcasts. They show you the, the, the ones that got away, you know, the yes. ones that, or, or they will say, I've redesigned covers that I've seen that I think I could do better with. Well, I was doing that back in the 60s. I would go home and I would redesign a book cover that I'd seen that I thought was not very good and, you know, and had a little folder, little A4 folder, you know, with that you'd slip things into. So I would do this every night at home in the kitchen table, um, you know, just with a hope and a prayer, not, not knowing really what I could do with it until one day I happened to be in uh, – the opposite end of the uh, the road to um, uh, Ludgate Circus, which is where I worked, and Farringdon Road. And I walked down one day and I saw this fantastic illustration in what was a sort of shop window in an office. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I, I went a week later walking by and there was another illustration. And I went inside. I thought I, I'd find out what this was all about. And I went in and saw this chap who approached me, very tall, elegant chap. 
And he asked me what I wanted. And I said, look, I've just noticed, you know, for two weeks running these fantastic illustrations. Well, what, what do you do here? And he said, oh, we're an artist agent and we represent illustrators who work for magazines and publishing. Anyway, he, he said to me, what, what do you do? And I said, well, I work at a little studio just down the road. And then I said, but I also would love to design book covers. And, I, and he said, oh, well, come, come and see me. And so I went along to see him the very next week with my little A4 folder. And he sat me down and I was thinking, you know, this is a very nice place, all these illustrations. And he started to flip through and he said, oh, well, these, I think these are rather good. And I said, oh, thanks. That's very kind of you. And he said, how would you like to come and work here? <laughs> I said, what? What do you mean? He said, well, we, we, uh, what we do is we produce a lot of illustrations for publishers and the publishing houses themselves, they don't have any internal staff. So they have to go outside and get people to put the typography on. So we thought we would start that service here so we can give them a complete service. And so that, you know, I gave my notice in the very, <laughs> the very next week I'm in this place, surrounded by the most fantastic illustrators of, of the period. They were doing everything, you know, I mean, really terrific. I, I was there for, I think I was there for about a year and a half. And I got to know all the publishing houses because, you know, I was dealing with them. And I started to do freelance work for them. That was, you, you've got to remember then, I mean, when you think about, you know, Penguin and Random House, they've got 34 different imprints, most of which I probably would have worked for when they were independent, <laughs> independent back, in yeah. the, back in the 60s and 70s, because yeah. you would go around Bedford Square, that was, that was publishing land, and you would go from, you know, one publisher to another with your little book, and show them your work, and they would never have art directors. They'd have they'd have uh, editors who were kind of given the job because they were quite small. They were not publishing masses of books, so it would usually be someone in a corduroy jacket with patches on the sleeves who would be given the job, <laughs> smoking a pipe, <laughs> and they would just either give you the manuscript, which is m more often the case, and tell you briefly about the book, and you go home. And then you go back and show them design and there'd be very little conversation. And they say, great, go home and do the artwork. <laughs> so you go home and do the artwork, which was then obviously all paced up and separations uh, and all that. And it was a very straightforward, um, very, you know, the fee was about you know, 25 pounds or 18 pounds at the time. <laughs> um, but it was, I thought, this is great. I love this. And I started to then work out the, who the best publishers were. And I hit on Heinemann because they had, at the time, would, had done some very nice covers. And I, I started to get some work from Heinemann. And when I went in after my second job, I think, the art they had an art director, and they were in Queen Street, Mayfair. And he said to me, oh, I'm leaving and I was disappointed because I was getting on well with him and he was giving me very nice work and it was, you know, very seamless sort of getting it through. And I said, oh, God, that's that's a drag. And so he said, why don't you apply for the job? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, well, what do I do? And he said, you, it'll be advertising the bookseller. 
So I, I said, well, where do you get that? And he said, well, you know, go to W. H. Smith. I went to W. H. Smith and they said, oh, no, the bookseller's subscription only. You have to go to a library. So I, <laughs> so I then rushed to the nearest library I could find in London and they had the latest copy of the bookseller. And in the back was a little lad saying, art director required for William Heinemann, experience of understanding of printing and commissioning and publicity. I thought, Jesus, I mean, I don't know half of that. I went along for the interview and I figured, having spoken to the art director that I had, that they really didn't know that much about printing. And I didn't, because it was all handled by the production manager at the company I worked for. So I kind of, you know, gave the impression I knew everything. And lo and behold, they gave me the job. And I thought, wow. And I'm in an office, my own office, with a secretary next to the publicity director, knowing absolutely fuck all about, <laughs> about printing. So I phoned all the printers I had to deal with, because I was dealing with the print work, you know, the actual commissioning yeah. of the print. These days, that would be a production department. And um, I phoned them and I said, look, you know, I've just started, and I, I, know, I, I know nothing about printing. I don't know what life of printing is or letterpress. And they said, don't worry. Don't worry, because others they were getting, getting a lot of work from Heinemann, and they were fantastic. They so within very short spaces, I, I knew everything about printing, and I in fact became obsessed by it. And you must um, have learned so much in such a short space of time as well. I did, I did, but I've always been relatively good at learning about things I'm really passionate about. So yeah, photography. Um, I illustrated for many years. I, I just go down a rabbit hole. You know, and I just, and I, you know, that's the way I am. So I then sat, settled into this lovely job of publishing in that period. And what you should know is that the difference between publishing now and then is that they were publishing houses, right? So Heinemann, for example, they had a, a housekeeper who would bring on a trolley, you know, uh, coffee or India or China tea into the, the the various, you know, the managing director in the chairman's office and so on, and the editorial director's office, it would be like a very comfortable, you know, lots of little sofas, very comfortable and very pleasant, low lighting. And so I would have my task was, I, I was, I realized very early on that the, the enemy within the building is the sales department. <laughs> <laughs> because they had they had it, it's like they only knew a couple of tunes the sales director and his sidekick were like you know good cop bad cop so i'd go in with the cover and the the good cop who was this uh, exitonian he'd say to me oh good morning mike how what have you got to show us today and so i'd say well i've got this cover and he'd go Oh yes, that's very good. What do you think, Chris? And Chris, Chris was a slightly aggressive northerner, and he'd say, "I think the type should be bigger, <laughs> always." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh God, this is this is not what I expected." Anyway, I found my way around that <laughs> because what I used to do is, if I cared really, you know, because I was beginning to use really good designers. A lot of them from the Royal College, and that was the person before me, had gone to the Royal College, and a lot of great people that went on into advertising and so forth. 
were doing covers at the time. And, you know, I started to use the very same people. And I was, you know, I felt rather humble because these guys had been to the Royal College and they were brilliant. And so I wanted to get their covers through. So when Chris would say, I think the cover, the cover should be, you know, type should be much bigger than that. And I would go back and I would make the type smaller on the, the mock-up. Yeah. Because they would have signed the back of it, you see. And basically, if there was any question, I could, <laughs> I could show them the print, which is exactly <laughs> the same as I want, with the original with smaller type. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, but I loved um the, my period in in uh, in uh, in hardback publishing, and then I moved on to, uh, you know, I got to the point where I thought, well, I should really try and get into paperbacks. And um, Collins were advertising for a new art director for Fontana, which is a paperback. Yeah, and of course, and that was a completely different cup of tea because it was much more commercial. You know, it was it was um, it it was. A lot of you know, sort of what what they would call um, airport stuff, you know, where you have a big fat door stopper, and but they had a really good educational section and a good religious section, and it was only towards the end of the period because I was there for five years. The the fifth year, things started to change. So that tension you're describing there between like designer and, and sales departments you could could you see that the genesis of of that tension kind of increase in your time in publishing in, yeah. in those kind of 10 years yeah and I, i'm guessing you know and and that that tension is probably increased further and further as, as the decades have got have gone on so i um, understand yes yeah i guess one of the reasons why i was keen to have you on the podcast was because you've you've been a, a critical voice on the the current state of book cover design, um, and while you often highlight really good examples of uh, of uh, recent designs on your Twitter and Instagram and blogs, um, is it fair to say that you believe cover design has slowly lost its way over the past few decades? Uh, I, and and if so, why do you think that might be? And I, I'm assuming this kind of ties in with that tension between art departments and and sales and, and other departments within publishing. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a bit wider than that, Steve. I think the thing you know we live in an age now where where we can see everything that's going on, literally twenty four seven. Back in those days, you know, you had to wait for an annual to come along. There was no there was no internet. There was no immediacy of seeing what was going on around the world, and so the geographical. Uh, fashions, if you like, were very local. There, you know, there was a, there was an American look, which was usually witty. There was a Swiss world, which was very, you know, very uh, um, regimented and, and cool and minimalist. And then there was the British, who were somewhere in between. They liked the touch of the Americans, and they but they liked a bit of Muller Brockman. You know, that's yeah. the way it was. Uh, because we now live in this age where everything is available, it means that. And also we are totally digital, which we know uh, you can do a lot of the things that we used to do, you know, mechanically, physically, uh, take no time at all. Whereas then I had to use, I, I used to have to actually make a mock-up physically of the cover. So literally doing the cover, but in an analog way, 
and then do the artwork once it was presented. Here, we know that, you know, an editor or whoever, I mean, it's the same in film, you know, in film editing, they used to cut and splice and it would take three days to see a transition, you know, to on a screen. So basically uh, now anyone can sit next to the film editor and say, oh, wouldn't it be good to speed that up a bit, you know, like a producer or something. And in, in book covers, they know, you know, can we have half a dozen different colors? Yeah. Because they know it can be done like that. Yeah. And so what, what it means is that the interference factor is heightened to an yeah. enormous degree. And I also think with publishers now like, you know, um, Penguin Random House, who are massive, with huge staffs, um, and from what I understand, because I, I was on last week in preparation for this chat, I thought I'd just check up, see what was going on. I hit upon a couple of little videos of of the process. I think it, they were um, Penguin, or they have little films, yeah. showing you the process. And I think I wrote it down somewhere here. Covers normally, you know, can be up to to be presented sort of the minimum of two times, but up to twenty. And I thought, what? Yeah, I think I think any kind of cover designer, particularly freelance cover designers, would you know, relate to that feeling quite often, where you're you you get those certain covers which keep bouncing back to you, where you can tell it's it's going back and forth to meetings and. Um, and sometimes even a brief might radically change halfway through a, through a job, which essentially makes all previous work redundant. And I think, you know, when you get those type of covers, well, you're making a loss, aren't you? Let, let's be honest. Um, well, you are. And yeah. that, that actually reminds me, because I've got it in front of me, but I, you've probably seen it, but maybe others haven't. Um, dear old Tom Gould. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, really summed it up in in this little cartoon where you've got <laughs> the designer and probably the art director. There's two women here, and um, the art director saying everybody absolutely loves this amazing cover you've designed, <laughs> and so the, the, the designer saying great, and then <laughs> says, I've just got a few quick notes from the team, and then it says. <laughs> And so the, the little designer looks a bit perplexed and, and, and the art director says, the author has changed the title. The marketing doesn't <laughs> like the picture. Sales prefer a different colour. The format has changed and I'm not sure about the font. Other than that, it's absolutely perfect. And I thought, that's exactly, that's exactly what I, I think the thing is, again, going back to this little film, there seems to be an enormous amount of people involved in the process yeah. of, of these days. And I think, well, what do they all do? Yeah. I think I, I think when that cartoon came out that Tom Gould did, every cover designer, you know, had a right <laughs> smile. I'll, I'll make sure I'll post it for anyone who hasn't seen it. I'll make sure I post post a, a link to it in the, in the show notes so people can see it for those who haven't. Um, and I think one of the, like, the magical things about cover design is how it can how it can communicate immediately and how it can capture someone in an instant and and how books quite often need to be accessible to all. But but with that, often means that cover design is open to lots of opinion um, and whether it's valid or not. And sometimes there's not always a right or wrong answer in what we do. But the, the phenomenon of design by committee it is something you hear about in all areas of commercial design. Um, and it's particularly prevalent in, in publishing. But in your experience, how does 
design by committee impact the quality of design and its intended communication? Well, a lot. You know, I mean, I think if you, it would seem to me that if you've got a good art director, you know, a good intelligent art director that can fight your corner, then you've got a chance. But if you haven't, then you're on a no hiding to nothing. Because if you're up against, I don't know how many people that you've got the editors and you've got the marketing sales department and the art director as well, a lot of them, they all have a job to do and they all feel obliged to say something. If you if you sit in a room with 10 people and you say, what do we think of this cover then? There's not going to be a complete silence. Someone's bound to say, oh, I don't like the illustration. Very. You know, it, it's like the beginning of of kind of testing food, really. Yeah. And it's not going to appeal to everyone. And I think that really a, 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 a cover designer today, it seems to me, is just an enabler. That Those people can't do it. They need someone creative to do it so they can pick holes in it. That that's I mean, that's my blunt view of it, because I think there's far too much, you know, graphic design is the most interfered with of all areas, creative visit, because the moment you, you know, I've designed stamps, I've designed, you know, everything, really. And I think, for me, the most interfered with world was publishing, because of this. I, I can't think of another, mainly because, first of all, outside of the industry, you're working with people that are serious, but they respect why they've commissioned you. And and you can go in and you can argue your corner and it'll be, a, you know, it'll be, they may have some good points, fine. But I think with publishing, the norm is to take things apart. The question you asked me, which I've rambled on a bit about, was really how do I see designers now? I think... Yeah. For me, they're expected to wear many coats of colors because of this business of everyone being able to see what's going on around the world, what's successful. Yeah. You get that. We want a bit of that. Can we have that? You know, the, 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 those designs that have got all these whatever. Yeah. And you see, I mean, you had a very nice guest on. Uh, oh, uh, Michaela. Well, she has a very specific style. Yeah. Very crafted. And obviously, that's it's very unusual these days to find someone that has a real personality fingerprint on her yeah. work. But immediately, you can go into bookshops, as I do a lot, as you probably know. I'm always in Waterstones looking at the tables. <laughs> and there are loads of people ripping her off. Yeah. And that says to me, the publisher said, look, this is can we have one of these? And I think that that's sad because it means that I take photographs of those tables where everything is looking very similar and I post them and I only post them to say, look, this is actually what's going on now, you know, and you have to hunt out, as I do, hunt out the the ones that actually you never see on the tables. You know, it's sad. You know, the good stuff seems to be really, you know, not very important in terms of the sales team. The sales team want those things on the table, and they all tend to be very similar. You know, if everyone's afraid of of white backgrounds or small type. And if you were to do that just once, that would stand out brilliantly on the table because you're overwhelmed with everything, and including the, I saw a, a book from 
of all publishers, Faber last week, that had 12 quotes on the front cover. Okay, there were only single words like fantastic, the times, you know. But, I mean, I thought there was a time when everybody knew that what you'd have to cover and you'd turn it over and the quotes would be on the back. Hardback book, you'd have the cover, turn it over and the quotes would be on the back. Now it's have the cover, put all the quotes on the front cover and everything else. Yeah. Matt? Yeah, it's... um it's a hard one to balance and you know i have i have no experience as as an art director but um i know it's a demanding job kind of balancing all these different departments and their various expectations um if if you were an art director like now and were struggling to juggle the weight of various departments within publishing how would you kind of work to tackle this problem and and work with with those departments to achieve and maintain high design standards? Well, I I can only tell you of something outside of publishing, but it's not dissimilar. I was commissioned, um, you know, some time back now, a long time ago, um, to to rebrand English National Opera. Okay, this is quite something. They had an in-house studio. Uh, rather like publishers have, that were, and I was commissioned by the director of of, of the uh, English National Opera, who was a very incredibly bright um, man, um, who was very understanding of creativity and art and so forth. And I said to him, well, can I, can I come over for the week and see how everything is currently done before you know, doing anything. And he said, yeah, sure, of course. So I went over and I, 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 the in-house studio were bullied by all and sundry, you know, the dramaturge and producers that producers are freelancers. They come in to direct an opera, but they were dictating what will go on the poster. Yeah. And I went back to him and I said, look, it's, you know, they, they don't seem to understand that the post, this is a producer, the post is not for their bedroom wall, this is to communicate English National Opera as an entity, yeah. as yeah. the hero, not their particular prop. And he he said to me, right, okay, uh, what do you want me to do? And I said, I, I want you to stop having any uh, involvement with those people on the approval process. And also, I think, sadly, the the the, the um in-house studio, not up to scratch. They they can't, you know, they were defeated. And so we took the whole thing over. And mm. it was one of the best jobs I've ever done. And so I, I think, going back to your question, what would I do now? I would be hopeless in publishing because I'd just lose my temper. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's so many things kind of that come into play that that result in, in the things you describe as well. It, it was, you made a really interesting point about, you know, how we consume like visual culture now is so so instant compared to to you know decades ago where like you say you'd have to wait for for the end of the year for when when an annual came out and and you could see what moves people were making whereas now it's just it's so instant and you know there's always another trend there's always something else you can <clears throat> you can jump on whereas i guess before when that when that wasn't around you probably had to rely much more on your own instincts as opposed to rely on what other people were doing. So that, that that's interesting. 
and I think, yeah, the undoubtedly the amount of people that are involved in approval meetings for covers is is is, is giant. You know, you know, I, I have little experience compared with a lot with a lot of people that I've invited onto the podcast, and probably a lot of the people that listen to the podcast in terms of actually being involved in cover meetings. You know, I've I've never worked at a, in a in a senior level within a publishing within a publishing house, but in the cover meetings I have been to and when you have this environment where you have so many people pitching in their opinions and and this push from the cover meeting to make everything bigger bolder jazzier etc is is probably what's contributing to what you describe when you visit shops like Waterstones um and also the books that are on display tend to be you know uh, have a big name author or celebrity authors and things like that. And, and with that comes sales expectations, and then people start defaulting to, to what they believe works as a strategy. This kind of goes ties in quite nicely into, in, into one of your consistent criticisms about cover design. It is the amount of extra copy that is now added to the front of covers, be it quotes, stickers, best-selling author lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in your opinion, why do you think this hampers the effectiveness of the design? Because, it, you know, there's no two ways about it. If you've got an idea mm. and the essence of that idea is going to be slowly covered up with a load of crap, then, you know, it's not going to be very effective, is it? I mean, it's it. it that's why, you know, interestingly, I don't really see, and I, I know that you've spoken on this podcast about illustrators. I think David Pearson talked about illustrators agents being much more on the ball with their um, clients in that you don't get a lot of good illustrators anymore because they don't get paid enough money because the agents make sure they get a good deal. And, you know, when I was art directing, uh, particularly at Fontana, well, and Heinemann too, it's a long time ago, I was using absolutely fantastic, who wanted to work with me because they knew that their illustrations would be treated with respect. So I would always make sure the typography was sympathetic and it wasn't overwhelming and that they didn't cover. You know, I used Mark Boxer to to do the Anthony Powell Dance and Music of Time series, which was a joy and it was fantastic. And it was a, something like 21 books. And, you know, I know these days, on occasions when they're reprinted and they occasionally use his, use his original illustration, they look terrible because, you know, they're, they're not sensitively handled. And I, I think, you know, I, uh, this is a, uh, a parallel story, really, with what happens with good design when it's overwhelmed by, you know, people that are not, they, they're not sympathetic design and they just bulldoze over it and that's a long time ago i wrote a piece called uh the sign of the times on my website oh, not my website my um uh what is it um your, is your blog blog yeah that's it which i i don't use much these because people don't you know don't want a long read anymore so <laughs> but i i did this piece about the radio times 
And the Radio Times during the period of David Driver as art director, which is a long period where he introduced lots of fantastic, fantastic illustrators, Peter Brooks and um, Mick Brownfield, loads of people he used, really, and George Hardy, you name it, he used them. And also internally, the layouts were fantastic. They had articles that were educational. It was like brilliant, so different from TV Times and all, all the other ones. And then suddenly it all fell apart. I think they, the agreement they had with the BBC sort of went sideways and they they just turned into a listings magazine. And it's tragic. When you look at the body, it was a golden age of Radio Times. And I wrote about this anyway, say, and I got so much flack from the existing people at Radio Times at the time. But it turned into the most fantastic thread from previous edit- editors, from David Driver, explaining you know, what they were trying to do. And one thing that David Driver said, which was great, is he's because the the art director at the time that I that had a go at me said you know it was all it was all very well for David Driver it was probably very easy for him to get and David Driver then obviously who'd been sitting on the lines reading this stuff came in and said actually it was tough and I had to fight my corner for my yeah. for what I believed in in order to get it through and I thought good on you that's exactly what it should be like but yeah. I don't think that art directors are treated like that anymore. Actually, this is a very depressing tone. <laughs> de- <laughs> I don't think you're – I think anybody from the industry listening to this are not going to like me at all. <laughs> no, but I think it's, 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 it's hopefully useful to, to kind of critically analyse the, the state of design and, by extension, our particular corner of design because – you know, social media can be a, a messy place and despite having many positives um, that it can bring, you know, critique on anything normally can get lost in translation or misinterpreted or just descend into a furore. Um, but I kind of, I hope that conversations like the one we're having and other ones I inevitably have on the podcast can kind of encourage healthy debates on why things are like they are and then maybe it might encourage people to try to sit back and 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 maybe rethink the way that certain things are done that's 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 hopefully my intention is just to kind of to to, to spark a debate so that you see know, like you say it sort of seems a bit kind of negative well, do you, but do i you guess think... it, that's it's that's kind of critique i suppose isn't it yeah do you think how a cover is now used whether it's on a on a screen and not just as a as a printed object uh, and it's often now seen as a thumbnail or on on social media. Do you think that changes how designers should respond to designing books when compared to like that pre-internet age? Um, well, obviously, you know, Amazon are the big culprit here because you know that you only see them at the size of a stamp if if, if you're lucky. And so legibility at that size becomes an issue. And I I think I read or I heard that maybe it was from your or one of your guests that, about having, why not have two versions, you know, one for, but I mean, that's going to be extra work and I don't see that uh, coming off at all. I think it's sad that, um, you know, that a cover design is dictated by something that's going to be seen at such a small size and it should not be, denigrated to that kind of level um but 
it's a powerful mechanism. We we all know how much uh, Amazon disrupted publishing, you know, big time. The fact is that in my heart, I love cover design. Why, you know, that's why I go to, and I have done for years, go to all these events of showing covers that I feel are worthy of showing. And on occasions, criticizing when I think it's, look, it's sad, it's all going wrong. Um, to the extent that, you know, some time ago, some time ago no, four or five years ago, I really upset some the very people that I care for, which are designers. And I, I inadvertently upset. And a whole mob descended on me. Well, this is the <laughs> problem had, with social media, isn't it? I, think, I had well. two weeks of <laughs> telling me, who, you know, who do you think you are? Anyway, <laughs> but I do, you know, I do care, and it is a lovely thing. When you consider all the people over the years that have done covers, not only the great designers, great artists as well, covers have been something very special. Yeah. You know, doing a cover and having it on a book and seeing it in a bookshop. I mean, when I was first married and went on my honeymoon to to Dartmouth in uh, in Devon, your yeah, county, okay. yeah, um, I took with me <laughs> one of the first manu- manuscripts I was given by Hutchinson yeah. to do this book, okay. which, was co- which was called The Tree and the Flood. And I was more worried about that than the being married and going to my honeymoon. <laughs> and I spent the whole time there reading it and getting more and more panic-stricken. So, <laughs> and I can remember that to this day, being yeah. given a manuscript that yeah. someone had typed. I mean, it was obviously a copy, but I thought, "Wow, this is this is the the manuscript." So I, I, I it, you know, I, I will never, you know, until the day I die, covers are always important to me, and will continue to show covers that I think are great and mention people, whether the and I'm trying to, I'm trying to veer out further to other countries because you know we don't see enough of. I posted something this morning from Portugal which are really simple, elegant two-color covers. And uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not, you know, I want to go to Germany and have a look at all these other countries to see whether they're subjected to the same horror as we sometimes <laughs> are. But when you, see, when you see a good cover, it shines. There's nothing better, yeah. There's nothing better. And you think, no. that's great. Going back to that, how Amazon shifted... Hmm. the publishing space as well i mean this i've only i've only worked in publishing for just over a decade now and hmm. this has always been a, a factor this thumbnail factor make everything big um <clears throat> kind of thing uh the, the one thing i'm not even sure on is do people use amazon in that way when they're on the website you know when you're in a bookshop you you do tend to just float through past the shelves and uh, and a a cover might you know kind of catch your eye and then it kind of hones you in i don't know if people even shop in that way on when they're on amazon do they just i think a lot of people with amazon they 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 already have something they have in mind they're searching for they find it and then they buy it so i'm not even sure if the the this this kind of trickle down effect to the everything's got to work as a thumbnail thing is even relevant because I'm not sure people shop in that way even. I no, don't, I, don't agree. I, I, could, I, I I could be wrong, and, and mm, please, I'd, I'd be interested if people disagree. But I agree with you. I think what happens is, and I saw this firsthand. Um, my studio is in is in um, um, is in Clerkenwell in London, yeah. 
Yeah. And um, close by is Exmouth Market. And there was, when I, you know, several years ago now, a lovely independent bookshop, really, really good. And they were trying really hard. And people go in there and thumb the books. And then basically, I was chatting with them one day and I, I, I said, How's it all going? And they said, Oh, it's not going great. Because people come in, they see the books that we're offering, which are kind of often not available as as greatly in in major bookshops anyway and they go they they just take note of it and go off and go on to and get it cheaper on um, amazon that was yeah. the fact that's why so many of these little bookshops uh closed but i think more have opened since since the pandemic people have kind of gone back to books and i hope that they continue to do so well yeah I and mean, i hope it's like a, a reaction almost to everything having to be on a screen and, and people they want like a physical object in their hand as well. I think sometimes there's a, there's a great beauty and a power in in, in, yeah. a, in, the, in the object of a book. I think like nowadays there's a mix of great designs among very unremarkable covers. But um, some might argue that this has always been the case. That yep. it's always been the case. Is there a risk we can have an impression of a, of a period of design that just forgets the not so good bits of an era? and then use that to judge the work across the board that happens yeah. today. Of course, yeah. I mean, I think it's just the sheer volume today that's being spewed yes. out, which yeah, is that's massive. True, yeah. That kind of um, skews it, doesn't it, I think? And also the, the, the thing that, for me, that is sad, a sad thing, is that the, the area that I always felt where some of the best work was done is non-fiction, um, and I can only, I mean, I, I'm always talking about Penguin, but Penguin for me, when I was in, uh, you know, paperback publishing was the company to look up to. And at that time it was, it was David Pelham. He was the art director and he was absolutely phenomenal with that area. I mean, so many covers now that you, the great thing about ideas, which I'm kind of interested in is that they transcend time and style. A good idea is a good idea, you know, and you can see it as 50 years or whatever. It's still an idea and it's still you think, oh, that's great. And David was a master at that. And and Penguin were the company for seeing that, a block of them, you know, using people like, um, uh, you know, um, I, gotta, I, I, I forget people's name. De um, Derek Birdsell, of course, he did masses of very, very witty, often mostly typographical, funnily enough, but with ideas. And that was a golden age of that. You'd, now, when you look at those sort of books, they're filled up with the usual stuff, you know, the greatest things since sliced bread. And I miss that. I really do. You, you just don't get those anymore so uh, you're right i mean the fact is at any given time there are always a lot of terrible covers but we just get a lot more of them now because it's so big and unfortunately they they tend to because there are so many it's like a it's like a kind of virus they they tend to infect everything else around them and so you can understand if one of them sells a bit the marketing department say, well, this did very well with the blue cover and then the pink this and then the strap, and you, you're being told what to do. 
So my my view about you know desi- designing book covers as a profession to support you for the rest of your life and have a family and all that I think is you know pretty difficult. I think you have to you can't lock yourself into that because it's going to change. You know we we know AI is on the doorstep and a lot of people say well it's not going to be it is going to have a big effect I think. Just to um, segue um, a little bit, and you kind of you you mentioned you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, how a designer works now has has evolved a lot over the decades, um, and you've been in the design industry since the mid sixties, and, and have witnessed that changed and worked successfully through it. Um, and technology has has led to many obvious benefits to designers, you know, allowing us to work work much faster and, and things like that. Um, but has design lost something along the way as well? Um, is it is it too easy to just to sit at a computer now and produce work rather than exploring different ways of working? Do you think? Well, I don't. Well, first, I don't think designers should work that way. They should always start with a, you know, even if it was back of an envelope. Um, yeah. But have a sketchbook with them and actually don't turn the computer on. Don't go on to Pinterest or, you know all of those places just go out yeah <laughs> you know yeah. go to a, go to a coffee shop and sit and think for a bit because i i think that's the danger it, that's why we're seeing probably so many similar things because they're just lifting them and uh using them but i th- i think uh, obviously you know our digital age has helped us enormously you know the things yeah. that we spent hours doing i mean i don't want to go you know bits of paste up stuck on my elbows or anything like that anymore you know it was bad enough doing it i mean you know do it going into a publishing house being the art director and designing covers yourself with a little you know parallel motion but i didn't even have that just had a t-square um you know to to do and and had the the grids printed in non-photographic blue and then pasting the whole thing up with overlays was really took a long time and you had to cut everything out in the early days you couldn't get the typeface i love dearly on the very early book covers that i um worked on was um schmalfetter grotesque which was only available in twin magazine you couldn't get it even in the early versions of photos photo setting it was all hand setting so i would buy the magazine have the you know, as much of this typeface photographed by the local guys that we used to use for prints and then cut it all up and push it all together. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to do that again. No, no. But I think that, that your point, I mean, it's interesting because what you see in with lots of young designers um, and, you know, it's curiosity and, and uh, experiences that they, they've never lived through is – you know, why um, St. Bride's Library is so important or um, Alan Kitchen is so important, you know, the, the, the sort of physically getting dirty with a bit of woodblock type. Now, they're not going to, you know, do that, but it shows them how it used to be and they can see how interesting it, the possibilities are of of doing things in an analogue way. I think the danger with, like, working on screen is that, you, you you hope it doesn't make 
yourself, I'm just speaking for myself, but other you know, other designers probably face the same thing is it, you, you don't want the technology to make you as a designer lazy and just rely on the technology too much and not go the extra mile to do something in an, in an analog way. And I, I think as cover designers, we, we have that opportunity to do these kind of interesting things probably more often than not compared to other people in other areas of design. And uh, and with AI projected to creep more and more into our lives, like the temptation might become very alluring to designers to start relying on technology even more. Um, what what are your thoughts on AI and how it could affect design generally, but also cover design specifically? Well, it's I a mean, big topic. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a big topic, but. You know, whether you like it or not, it's coming. It's coming. It's a bit like King Canute trying to stop the waves coming in. The fact of the matter is, I think that we know that learning AI will, given the task to look at every single book cover that's ever been designed and absorb that and be asked to, to, you know, come up with some thoughts. And they come up with thoughts very quickly and a lot of them. And they would all be may be interesting. Uh, likewise, you can say to the AI, okay, I've got a new design series I want done. I'd like it to be, could you do it a bit like Muller-Brockman? You know, give me some variations and bang, there they are. Yeah. I, I think it's more frightening than we might think. No, I I, think, I, I'm petrified by yeah. it, I've got to be honest. Well, um, you know, from the moment, I mean, look at look at what's happened in cinema. You know, they've had to go on strike in order to prevent AI yeah. from having their likenesses, uh, you know, created into, you, you know, already you could, yeah. the, the, there are little films of people who are, <laughs> who look like the people that they're not saying yeah. something that they haven't said. And I think that, you know, AI is, is going to be a big, uh, a big uh, force, yes. actually. And, and I think going back to all the, all the things we've been discussing as well about the kind of copycat nature of of kind of modern day, modern day cover design and certain tropes and a, a fixed idea about what a type of book should look like within a genre. So like, you know, crime covers, for example, or nonfiction, those things are going to become very easy to replicate with AI very quickly. Yep. And that's going to have an impact on, on people's jobs ultimately. Yep. Um, and, f- and for me, that's an even bigger reason to push the idea of what cover design can be and not to always fall back on these um, l- lazy responses which just look to emulate each other because mm. we're all going to do it ourselves out of a job if we carry on like that. And I think that's going to come sooner than we potentially realise as well. Um, It's something I'm worried about, and I think it's it's. I'm 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 hoping that maybe collectively, cover designers can can pull together just to make sure that publishers continue to value design and designers, and, and and don't and aren't tempted by just going down the path to something like AI where it can just bash out a range of covers in, in two seconds flat. Uh, Cause I think that would be tragic for the, the art of the cover design. 
I, I think that um, on that topic, really, the, there are no bodies, really, apart from ABC, ABCD? That, yeah. That's yeah. one. The, the, the annual awards that was started by um, John, John Gray and I think, was it? Jamie Keenan. Yeah. Jamie Keenan, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is very good. And yeah. But I think listening to David Pearson mentioning uh, the world of illustration and how illustrators have always been pretty well organized. And I, t- I go back to uh, when I was in publishing, you know, the magazine Illustrator, as it was then, um, they were they set up so many really good things for illustrators, like, you know, uh, legal help and all sorts of things. And I think that there's a need, you know, if if the world of book cover designers, and there are many, 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 many of them, they really need to get together and actually figure out a good way of trying to project, pr- protect their interests you know, second rights and copying and all all the rest of it, it would be wise for the community to try and sit down and work out what they might be able to do for the community. Yeah. You know, everyone chip in a small amount of money to help and maybe something good can come of it. Because I think there will be this worry that you're concerned about that is going to come up. I guess our kind of corner of publishing needs to potentially challenge itself to pull together to 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 think about these things before it's too late as well i think quite often we can be we can react to something but i think with something like ai it's going to happen so quickly that it it could be too late by the time we do kind of get organized and it's going to come faster than all of us can legislate for as well it's yep. um it's such a complex issue and it's gonna it's gonna touch all areas of design and creativity Mm-hmm. not just cover design. Um, do you mind if we talk about the DNAD Awards? Sure, uh, yeah. For yeah, a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you're well-placed to speak about DNAD having won a number of pencils over the years, and in 2012 you received a special DNAD black pencil for being the most awarded designer in their 50-year history. Mm-hmm. And also in 97, 98, um, you were the president of DNAD. Um, I've seen I've seen you mention on occasion that trade book cover design is is now often overlooked by the by the DNAD. Uh, why do you think that is? I think well, it's a twofold thing. I think first of all, a lot of a lot of designers got um, rather fed up with being left out, and so decided not to enter any work. Um, that happened. Also, with DNAD, you know, it expanded to be a global award. And to my mind, you know, I think we lost quite a lot then. We lost, you know, when you reach out to the entire world, just as Alliance Graphic International, the the, the graphic design body that um, votes in uh, new members every year, and I'm a member of that, but, you know, too old to go to those things now and go to New Zealand for a, a jolly and all that sort of stuff, which cost thousands of pounds. But anyway, I think the fact of the matter is, you know, geographical borders are interesting. You see different work, but not necessarily to your taste. 
So you go through the work and you think, well, I don't like a lot of this stuff. And I, th- I think that's what's happened to DNA to, to a certain extent. They get, they get jury members from all over the place now. They, they fly them into London. It's still done in person. Yeah. About the only, it's about the only one that is, I think. Maybe ABCD is, is, has real people in the room, but they do still do it with people and they fly them in. And because they're now global, they're going to get a range of people. So I think that they're being, you know, they're just not getting house room covers. Yeah. They're yeah. really not, no. which is sad because, th- you know, this book here has a load of covers in it. Yeah. <laughs> this this very first one and all the way through during you know my period that was a really good section you know always be book covers you know yeah and then suddenly it started to peter out um okay david pearson you know has regularly yeah, the, got stuff there's, in there's there's the odd, odd, odd exception um and and normally when it does happen it's it might be someone like like David Pearson, where it's rejecting a, yeah, an, yeah. a classic, where you yeah, might yeah. be afforded a lot more yeah, exactly. freedom. Yeah, I think they just dismiss the commercial world completely. I think yeah. they see that as you know. And do you not, think that do you, do you think that affects their judgment on the piece's work as well? Because that they don't understand. Yeah, I, do you think that they don't understand necessarily the restraints and? Uh, of, of of the job at hand, maybe. Yeah, as well. I, I don't think that comes into it really. I think you know DNA D was all always about um, because if you were to look at it analytically and pinpoint things that have won lots of awards, quite more often than not, they were failures. But DNA D's view was so what? It doesn't matter. It was pushing. It's pushing things forward. And that's what it's all about. It's about recognizing what's what's new and what's. Uh, you know, worthy of showing, not just because it's been, that's the Design Business Association. You know, if it's sold 10 million things, it's apparently great design as well. And, uh, you know, I've never agreed with that. Uh, I, I've agreed with the DNAD side that it really is about pushing things forward. And so they might not have worked, but it doesn't matter. Eventually people catch up. Yeah. And um, obviously, Fees to enter are quite high as well, which are hard yeah. for hard for particularly freelancers to justify as well, um, which, which probably doesn't help. And like you say, I think it probably just leads to a, a lot of people just not entering ultimately, which is kind of partly contributing to to the DNAD not picking covers just because they're just they're not there to pick. Um, and obviously, with the emergence of the ABCD awards over the past decade, is potentially made the DNAD less relevant to cover designers here in the uk um because it's 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 free to enter it's free to attend um and it's it's ultimately it's judged by people fellow cover designers who you know might have a have a unique insight into the into the job we do yeah and Um, i think that's great for for the that community because you're right you know dnad is expensive and i don't think they've really ever addressed that and they should because they give a lot of money to young designers in their various educational things. And I think they should be, you know, it, the problem with DNAD from the very beginning was that there was this fight of, between uh, the design side, the design bit, and advertising. And advertising won every time because they had money, 
you know, they had big clients that, and that's why even now the advertising agencies are the ones that, you know, get much more involved and large corporate clients now like Apple, you know, they're, they're always winning everything because they're yeah. very good, but they also donate money. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of a factor. And I think that's, that's, that's the, yeah, the good thing about the ABCD is that, you know, it's got real integrity because it's not beholden to anyone as well. No. And um, speaking with Jamie, Keenan and John, I think that's always going to, always going to be the case as well. One of the best things that's, that's come to light after starting this podcast is how students and designers starting out in their careers have been finding these conversations useful. Good. Um, you, you're passionate about design history, yes. and I'll, I'll make sure to include links to your to your to your blog and social media, etc., um, where people can read more. Uh, but for those who are listening who might want to do their own research. Could you name some designers or eras of design in publishing that students or designers just starting out could could learn from? I did a three-part uh, thing that you may or may never have read. It's called it's called Beware Covers Ahead. Yeah, I've read it, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, it's in four parts. It started yeah. out as being one post, and I got so <laughs> involved. But what it breaks down is it goes through all of the different strands, I think, yeah. Or publishing, spinning off there. Individual designers are all listed on my, uh, you know, there'll be Keith Cunningham, for example, who's a really interesting character who who freelanced for um, for Peter Owen books. Yeah. And his covers were always in two colour. They were all, all printed on Chromalux, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, no. a, it's a particular paper that has a very glossy chalky surface which is very okay. hardy yeah. and you'd overprint two colors onto that he would do everything himself so there was never any he didn't get a lot of money he was teaching at the royal college of printing at the time but he was at the royal college he was a painter and he used graphic design as a as a vehicle to earn money and teaching as well yeah um but he ended up um you know doing that and he's great and in fact one of your oh not one of your um the other thing, the thing that uh, David does, you know, his his um, book uh, book cover uh, review, yeah, yeah. So I, I, he's on my review, but he was on another person's review at the beginning, which amazed me because I thought, <laughs> well, nobody knows who he is. But basically, he's really interesting to show you what you can do with very little. But Derek Birds, of course, Raymond Hawkey, they're all people from an early period that you know younger designers might find interesting. No, that's really good. There's, there's some really interesting names for people to, to search out for. And I'll make sure that I put a link into the um, the four-part post you did in your blog because it is it's a really interesting read, uh, that one. And it's, it's a really good th place for students or designers just starting out to, to have a look at. Um, I've also enjoyed uh, many of the episodes that you've that you've made for the RDI, where, uh, the podcasts you do mm. uh, for them, where you interview members about their life and works. Um I mean, there's like an obvious episode, like the one with Derek Birdsall, um, that I think people listening yes. to would enjoy for, for sure. But you know, I, I've also enjoyed listening to episodes uh, like away from graphic design, like mm. um, Nick Park and Paul Smith, mm. and just hearing their stories and how they got to where they are. Um, it, it's it's great. 
have a bank of all these insights into such like heavyweights into their respective industries. It must have been a real thrill for you to to get to speak with designers for the podcast like you have. Yeah, well, I was lucky because I was um, uh, master of the faculty. And when you're master of the faculty, this is way back, you're supposed to do something, you know. Um, and uh, I just suddenly realised, because I, when I first joined the faculty, um, Abraham Games was still alive. Oh, wow. And so I go in, there'll be Derek Birdsall, there'll be Alan Fletcher, Abraham Games, you know, and Abraham, Abraham Games used to wear a tweed suit with a pipe <laughs> and be puffing in all this smoke in the RSA. And I, I didn't do it at the time, but I thought when, a few years later when I was, you know, asked to be master, I thought, what am I going to do? And then I suddenly thought, I'm going to do what I should have started to do. I'm going to try and get round to all the faculty. Impossible task because people die and then <laughs> new ones come on. So it's a never-ending trip. The the RDI looks um, to award designers who consistently achieve excellence in their in their mm. chosen field. But with, with the the people you've met over your career and the conversations you've had in the in these interviews and podcasts, yeah. What what characteristics and qualities do these designers all share? Have you found? Uh, very high uh, um, amount of dyslexia, okay. which I, I have to, um, yeah. a, a lot of that. Um, also, sort of not fitting in at school, basically, you know, just feeling that they were different, um, passionate about often drawing and looking and so I think that those are characteristics and not the gung-ho, you know, I want to be famous or us, just loving. And in fact, um, the one that I did with um, um, Roger Law of, you know, he, he was very interesting. He he made a point and, about designers and their enthusiasm and their almost willingness to do things for nothing because they just wanted to do the thing. And he said, that's... On spitting image, he said that's how, um, you know, the company um, that started the TV production found it so easy to get these people to, to, to work all night and virtually have nervous breakdowns because they were so excited about being well. And I know that for myself, you know, the moment a job comes along, the whole point of having to negotiate the money is a real pain. You know, right, rather like fine artists have to have their agents because they don't want to talk about the money. And I think that's a lot. I don't think we're great at business because the whole point of saying, well, how much do you charge for this little sketch or whatever it might be is embarrassing. I think that's the truth of it. Um, uh, so I, I, th I think I think anyone that is a true creative designer in our profession is part of a fraternity um, that are different. And I, and I say that because we, with the RDIs around a summer school, they had one just this just this week, week ago, but um, they ran it for a long time and they've just restarted. But I went for eight years and it was across discipline. So you'd have young architects, you'd have not, not students, you'd have young uh, creatives in their first five years 
what became very clear to me on the very first one was that it was like going in a rocket and landing on another planet where everybody was like you. Yeah. And you didn't have to say, you know, what do you mean graphic design? And you said, <laughs> they just, they all knew yes, it. They, they knew, they yeah. knew the thinking. They, it was so similar. So yeah. I think, you know, you're in a community that is, I think, special. Yeah. That's interesting as well. And I, uh, what, also what I enjoy about your, your podcasts is um, hearing the, the, the journeys of, of people and how they've got to where, to where they are, because I mean, it's for, for people my age, around my age, younger, mm. maybe a bit older, mm. a, a lot of our paths to where we've ended up will tend to be quite similar because there's a, there's a well-trodden path now. You go to school, you do foundation, you go to uni, you get a job, then you end up in publishing or wherever yeah. it might be. Whereas I guess the difference was with a lot of the people that you interview and yourself included is that that journey is always completely different and it wasn't it wasn't as obvious maybe and, mm. and potentially harder. Um, and I think with that, comes determination as well on top of passion and kind of talent and things like that yeah i think that's i think there's for any anyone they you know for me i was certainly passionate from an early age about drawing and i was very naturally curious about things and then i became determined that i wanted to escape from the world that i was inhabiting because i was being pushed into a world i didn't want to go in so i be, i became focused you know, I believed in myself. I joined, you know, evening classes. And then from then on, everything I've done, I've been very targeted about what I want to do. I've worked hard. But the main thing is I've absolutely loved what I do. Thanks so much, Mike, for taking the time out to speak with me. I think it's been a really interesting and, and unique look at our industry. And, and hopefully it's it's constructive to have like these kind of critical examinations on cover design and, and des design in general so you know, thanks thanks so much for for joining me today it's been brilliant well, thank you thank you um, and, and congratulations on the series thanks to mike for speaking with me it's really useful to chat about cover design from a critical angle with someone who has so much experience and respect it would be great to hear what people think and if you agree or disagree on any of the points we spoke about. Visit Mike's website at studiodempsey.co.uk. Follow him on Twitter at Graphic Journey and Instagram at Studio Dempsey. You can read his blog at mikedempsey.typepad.com and listen to the RDI Insights podcast on Spotify and Apple. Make sure to check the show notes where you can find links to articles on Mike's blog that we discussed and to Tom Gould's excellent piece about cover design. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow Cover Meeting wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you can take the time, please leave a rating or review as it really helps. Follow Cover Meeting on Twitter, Instagram, and now threads at Cover Meeting Pod for news about upcoming episodes. Cover Meeting was hosted by Steve Leard and produced by James Ead of beheard.org.uk. Thanks again for listening. And I hope you join again soon for another episode.